You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Bumble IPO, a sign of more hot initial public offerings to come, or a bubble indicator? U.S. Treasuries at yields of 1.2%. And of course, new developments in the crypto space. That and much more starts now. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, Good to talk to you, Ash. Good to talk to you as well. Lots going on here. What's on your mind? Uh, first and foremost is that IPO that you were talking about right at the top. I think it was it popped a lot. And I think your question about what is it a sign of, that's the question that's on everyone's mind right now. Yeah. Is it starting to feel like we're partying like it's 1999, Ed? You were it there? It feels that way. I mean, maybe it's we're partying like it's 1998. Uh, uh, but, you know, obviously in 98, we had the long-term capital management. But it definitely feels like... Uh, it's open season for IPOs, not just SPACs. I mean, that's another thing that we can talk about later on, but certainly for uh, companies that are not making any money to go public. In fact, actually, Joel Greenblatt and Howard Marks were talking about this in the uh, interview that was released and that's on platform now, how it does seem like now we're in that season where if if you're not profitable, hey, no problem. Uh, Money is there for the taking. Yeah. So this is my question to you, and I also want to throw this open to Jack, too. What is it that people really need to know here? You know, I think about this more broadly. I've been trying to struggle with this myself. And it's like, look, there's obviously an opportunity here in the sense that there are major changes that are happening. If you think about what Bumble is, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Everybody's in lockdown. People are striving for human connection. Everything is being digitized, virtualized. Uh, There's definitely an underlying trend here. However, there is also the question of valuations. Do things look rich? Do things look bubblicious? How do you try to contextualize that? So, Ash, I think that's a great question. I'm looking at this sort of going back to the GameStop thing that we were talking about two weeks ago. So this is a company, Bumble, uh, that is trading at $80 a share. Uh, it, you know, it had a, a huge spike. It was offered at $43 a share. Now it's at 80 And the question, just like with GME, is, is this something that's going to actually hurt retail investors? Because when you think about 1999, there was a bull market. I mean, if you look at the S&P 500, it was up 20% a year for every single year from 95 to 99. And so right at the end in 99, that was the end of a huge bull market. And the question then was, you know, who's getting into this market at the top and therefore getting hurt when the NASDAQ is down 80%, you know, when the S&P is down 30, 40%. That's what I'm concerned about right now. It's not that Bumble itself is overvalued or not. It's that the people who can least afford to get crushed if it is overvalued are the ones who are piling in right at this particular moment. Yeah, really well said. Jack, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, Ed, I, I think that the conversation that you just were having about Bumble now reminds me of the conversation we had about Airbnb when it uh, uh, went public in December, uh, it, it more than doubled on its first day of trading, despite the fact that its ability to generate positive cash flow 
uh, has not been substantiated. We're seeing the same thing with uh, Bumble, but I want to turn the question both uh, to the back of to, to the back of you. Uh, does that really matter? Is the, is the reason that companies uh, don't have to be profitable anymore because interest rates are so low, so the discount valuations are, are being uh, you know pumped up into the sky? Is it different this time? What do you guys think? Well, I'll answer that from the Greenblatt and uh, Mark's perspective. They were talking about that. People are struggling with that, especially because you're not using capital. In the old days, you know, basically you had to pour capital in and then you had to get a return. Now there's, it's a different story. If you think about how they're talking about the story, it, it's different in terms of the capital investment. Uh, you, you know, you do have to get these customers up front, get the network effects, et cetera. There might be something to be said for that accounting hasn't kept up with the way that businesses earn their money in terms of, you know, how do I spread the accounting over time in terms of the marketing in order to get a customer that's going to stay with me for seven or eight years. That's what Joel Greenblatt was saying. And uh, I'd make a second point, which is that when you talk about Airbnb, and I go back to 1998, yeah, we have no idea where we are in this cycle, how much longer it can go on. The The truth is, is, is that, you know, Yahoo IPO 96, uh, we had other IPOs that were later, these things can happen over a longer period of time. If the mark, if if the economy is doing well, who's to say that we couldn't be here a year or two from now? And there are ten Bumble type IPOs that are happening, and it's even better than it was before. Yeah, you know, to pick up on Ed's metaphor from uh, the '90s. Look, the thing about Amazon, for example, uh, there are two things that I think are important when you think about longer time horizons. Uh, the first is survivorship bias. How do you know that you're buying Amazon and not Pets.com? That's a critical point. And the second point uh, is that Amazon was underwater for years. If you bought at the high in '99, uh, and the reality is that there is a lot of risk in the system. But with that said. The flip side of it is also the opportunity, right? This sense that we are going through this period of digitization, virtualization, paradigm shifts, changes in consumer sentiment, changes in consumer buying patterns. And it really is kind of uh, a, a wide open space in many ways. If you think about it, very often uh, the incumbents have very difficult time shifting into new areas. If you think about Walmart uh, in terms of logistics and the massive operation that they've had uh, in place, Amazon somehow managed to beat them to the punch at every opportunity. Why is that? Incumbents, very difficult to interrupt themselves. So you have these opportunities where you have low base effects, opportunity to buy in at uh, a relatively modest number relative to the potential total addressable market. But when you're making those kinds of decisions, there's a lot of risk. Ralph said it last week. If you're coming uh, to Real Vision for personal financial advice, you're coming to the wrong place. That's not what we do here. You have to understand your own individual objectives, risk tolerance, needs, risk capacity. These are all things uh, that you really need to understand uh, in order not to get hurt. And that's something that you can't, uh, you can't get from analysis of markets. That's something that you need to talk to a professional about. Yeah. So, uh, Jack, wh where are you on this? I mean, because you weren't uh, investing uh, and partying back in 1999. Uh, this is your first uh, bout with potential bubble. I mean, that, that's the content campaign that we're doing right now. How are you thinking about that? Is that even the right question? Uh, well, Ed, I agree with the comparison you made earlier to uh, it being more like 1998, uh, not just because we could have another year or another year and a half of, of speculative fervor before 
we get to some uh, events, market events, but also because of long-term capital management. I think that's sort of what we saw with the massive forced degrossing of hedge funds uh, over the past three weeks due to uh, GameStop. Now, that has largely exited the um, the news cycle. I, I think that uh, speculative frenzy has entered, it's found new homes in um, cannabis equities and uh, random short squeezes that are scattered across the market that that we can talk about. But I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've got my eye on the credit markets because I feel like they are a little bit uh, less uh, rife with, I don't want to say speculation, but you know, in the, in the equity markets, you have stocks going up 30% and then going down 30% a day. And these, these are not microcap stocks. Um, but Ed, to, to get back to your broader point, I think uh, some of the interviews that we've done on Real Vision with Russell Napier, uh, Lynn Alden, your talk with Lynn Alden, and um, today's interview with Howard Marks and Joel Greenblatt uh, seeks to answer that question from a variety of angles. And what I like about it is I think Joel Greenblatt and Howard Marks are uh, two of the most well-respected interviews on the planet, but they're typically in the weeds. They're very micro. But in this interview that, that aired today on Real Vision, they sort of put on their macro hats, and they really talked about how the the Federal Reserve's uh, 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 actions in order to keep rates low, lower for longer, uh, ultra low for ultra long. That really is such a game changer. And then, so you know, those micro investors they uh, put on their macro hats. Russell Napier, on the other hand, very a macro oriented thinker. He put on his micro hat when he talked to Steve Clapham and Clapham. And uh, he said, "Okay, what I believe, you know, uh, is that inflation is coming, and that is is coming uh, in a big way. You know, I've actually believed that deflation. Uh, I've 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 been calling for deflation over the past decade, and I've been dead right. Now I'm switching my view. So I think he's well respected on that. And Steve Plappen brings him into the microsphere and says, "Hey, if inflation is coming, how can you invest? Obviously, we know gold does well in times of inflation. But let's say I'm not completely, you know, I want to hedge my bets and." I don't want to completely go in all, all, all in on your thesis. How can I play that? So, um, Ash, just to, to go back to what you said, again, it's Real Vision is not for specific. We don't give you specific trades. Uh, we don't uh, re really tell you to do anything. What we do is you know, have on investors who explain their framework, and that helps the user build their frameworks. And then they can make their decisions uh, um, that that uh, that that you know coordinate with their own needs and that are in their own life. So well, yeah, yeah, we can do analysis of markets. It's the individual stuff that people really need to understand for their own risk tolerance, especially when there are you know so much apparent opportunity and also at the same time uh, some things that appear to be structural risk rising. I'll give you an example that uh, something that Ed sent me earlier in the day, uh, an article uh, about internalization. Uh, of trades, the dark pools that are basically uh, forming in those numbers. And I'm just going to read a couple of the numbers and then turn it over to Ed for his analysis on this. But right now, 47.2% of US equity trading volume in January was executed outside public exchanges. Uh, and that's from 39.9% year over year. So a pretty significant jump here. Uh, and the peaks are above 50%. On peak days, high volume days, we're seeing 50% of the trade volume being executed off exchanges, internalized, in dark pools. Ed, what's the significance of that, and why is it something that it caught your eye? I think uh, two significance, uh, two points that I would make. One is about uh, the exchanges themselves and the whole concept of DeFi and other sorts of things. I mean, what we're seeing now is an atomization of the structure of finance in general. You know, there's a more decentralized world that we're living in, and potentially this is one avenue that it's taking that we're seeing. 
the other thing is if that is what's happening and if it's happening specifically in this particular market, we have to think about regulation. Uh, and also it goes back to what I was saying about uh, the, the small guy getting hurt. I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this because I think I uh, sent you the link from Carson Block. He had this article that he wrote in the FT and he was basically saying, uh, I think the article was labeled the stunk bubble poses significant global risks. And I, you know, I put out three takeaways on Twitter to this. I mean, my takeaways were that zero rates and leverage together are dangerous. That's risk number one. Uh, risk number two uh, is a lack of regulation will lead to bad outcomes. That's exactly what I'm talking about with regard to what's what we're, you know, the dark pools thing. And then the third is that passive investing, this is what he said, and he, he name-checked Mike Green specifically, passive investing is an amplifying force in both directions, both up and down. So right now, passive is amplifying you up, but uh, when the market goes down, as we saw it did in March, passive will amplify down. And you know, Tyler Neville, he says this all the time. Uh, he's a, a, one of our friends here from RV who doesn't come on our platform as much, but he says, look, you know, uh, when people start stop investing in their 401ks, that's when you have to wor st start worrying. It's when the passive flows stop going into the market. For me, that's when uh, bad things are going to happen. You know, Ed, uh, we could do a four hour show about this because this is an, an incredibly important point. When I was reading that article, you know, you you obviously the the guys who do the internalization talk about uh, fractionally better execution uh, for retail traders. Uh, but here's the thing about market structure and liquidity. There's always a ton of liquidity when you don't need it. The question is, what happens when prices start moving? It reminds me in some ways of the artificial suppression of volatility with low interest rates. It's the forest fire metaphor. You clear out all of the underbrush, uh, and maybe that doesn't have forest fires occur or spring up as often, but when they do, boy, do you really have a problem. It's an unknown effect. It's an unknown impact. I'm not trying to be gloom and doom or prophecy that there's going to be something massive that's coming. It's just hard to quantify. And now, by the way, we're getting less data around execution. We're getting less data around how orders get matched. Carson Block in the FT, a great article. I actually, uh, it's funny, and I haven't had... Uh, the opportunity yet to look at uh, at your Twitter because as I made the same points that you did in my list and it was pretty striking all of the same points uh, and when you have you know basically we're thinking about this uh, because we have the same backgrounds we see the same things many times so here's a quote from Carson Block Green estimates when an incremental dollar is put to work with an active manager it has an average effect on aggregate market capitalization of two dollars and fifty cents the multiplier occurs because the number of shares available is smaller than the total number of shares outstanding. And a buyer must often pay a premium to induce a shareholder to sell. However, Green estimates that when a passive fund receives an additional dollar, the automatic decision to maintain balance by buying in proportion to market capitalization results in a market cap of $17. 17 to 1. It's all those themes that we've been talking about on Real Vision. Uh, that are so important, the things that lurk beneath the surface, the structural issues, it's leverage, it's passive indexation causing processional and feedback effects, 
it's low rates, and it's the risk of bubbles. You know, the Mike Green analysis obviously is very, obviously is very sophisticated. Uh, but if you want the TLDR on passive indexation uh, via Mike Green, it's this. If you're buying something because it's big, it's getting bigger because it's big. And that strikes me as something that can become really problematic. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. And, and, you know, before Jack wades in, let me just say that we, we um, I talked to Katie uh, Stockton yesterday, and she had uh, four charts that she sent me. Uh, one of the four charts was the retail index. Uh, and the interesting bit was, this is the XRT ETF, is, is that if you look at the chart, it's relatively smooth. But then, uh, you know, I'm looking at it right now in uh, late January, it just explodes higher and then like falls like a, a rock lower. Why? Because GameStop uh, became a much bigger component of the ETF. And, it, and as a result of that, the people who were in the ETF uh, had to buy more GameStop. So passive was actually amplifying the move up of GameStop. And then when it started to go down, and GameStop actually became less of a component of the ETF, you know, they had to start selling GameStop too. So they were amplifying in both directions. Now think about that from the context of the S&P 500. If you get, you know, really big uh, companies, Tesla as an example, uh, you know, cratering 30% for whatever reason, that's gonna have a huge impact uh, in terms of amplification via this passive indexation. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ed, I think that's such a good point. The GameStop um, scenario, that endgame, the saga we've been witnessing over the past few weeks, is an excellent example of the uh, market dynamics that you get from uh, passive investing, and when the market is dominated by passive investing. Let's say that I am a, uh, I'm BlackRock, or I, I'm a, a passive investment vehicle. People give me money, and I allocate it uh, to a specific uh, market weighted index. And Ash, he's a, he's a shrewd guy. He's a uh, a hedge fund. Uh, he's a he's a hedge fund who you know makes makes the big bucks and is making the big calls. We both own GameStop, right? It's at ten dollars. It goes to three hundred dollars. Ash sells it because he obviously sees that the uh, intrinsic value, wherever it is, is well below the what the market is trading at, all the way up here. Me, I I hold on to it because my, I uh, I don't care about valuation at all. All I want is for my own allocation, what's in the ETF or the fund, to match the index. And GameStop went from 0.02% of the index to 0.6% or a, a 30 times larger in terms of the, the share of market. Um, and, and it briefly was actually the largest stock in the Russell 2000, um, larger than, than uh, uh, the fuel cell company. Um, so that is exactly that. And when, when GameStop went in and people gave me more money, I actually had to buy more GameStop. Um, and then, but you're seeing the same dynamics going down, I think, uh, Ash, in conversation that Mike Green had with, with you, he used the phrase, uh, they have, the, the market has no breaks, but it's going uphill. So you can't see that, that the market has no breaks now. But if we ever reach a crest and things go down, I think that you know, we could see that volatility go in the opposite way. Uh, it could go down as well. Yeah. And by the way, let me just say that uh, I know that GameStop has gotten crushed and they're down near $50 a share. Uh, AMC, because no one's talked about AMC, AMC is trading at 557 right now. 
so AMC is another one of these meme stocks that uh, you know peaked at like 20. So that's a stock that's down 70%. Just imagine if you got in, you know, not at the top, but near the top. Let's say you got in at $15 a share. Now you're at 556. You could be sitting on losses for a very long time. So yeah. that that's basically what I'm talking about in terms of you know where we are now. Some people they think when the narrative for GameStop was that you know that we're crushing the big guy, but really when you think about who's holding the bag, it's the people who came late to the party. Many of those people are going to be retail, and so going back to the IPO, I worry that these IPOs are going to start coming fast and and furious, and that if you're not diversified across a a, a large enough section to get the next Amazon, to get the next eBay or the next uh, Facebook, then you are going to be decimated uh, when some of these go to zero. Absolutely. And Ed, I just want to draw a point of distinction because you mentioned AMC, AMC. With GameStop, you actually did have some retail traders on Wall Street Bets who did rip the faces off of the you know sophisticated hedge funds, Mel Melvin Capital. As so you actually did have the little guy win, although you know it's uh, turning out now not great at all. Um, but with the case of AMC, I think it's much more a stark example of, of you know what can happen with with the big big uh, investors benefiting because I, I think there were billions of dollars worth of debt that was held by uh, well-heeled private equity firms that actually was paid off as AMC uh, issued more equity because the stock was so high, and then they used that capital from the retail traders to pay to basically make the whales whole. So. Uh, I think the d dynamics there are really interesting, but you know we've talked about IPOs. I want to switch it a little bit to SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. Um, I know Ash has had a, an upcoming interview with Mark uh, Yusko, a friend of Real Vision. Um, Ash, what what did you learn in that interview? Well, you know, it's an interesting interview. Obviously, Mark Yusko is encyclopedic about this. They've just created. Uh, he's just partnered to create uh, a new ETF around SPACs uh, and. Effectively, you know, I asked him, are SPACs a bubble? Um, not surprisingly, he doesn't think they are a bubble. He's very passionate about the space. But he brings up some really interesting points uh, about what SPACs are and how they work. Look, SPACs are a legal structure. Uh, SPACs are a mechanism uh, for companies uh, to raise money, uh, like a direct listing or an IPO. It's an alternate mechanism. And, and, uh, and Mark's point is that, look, you know, you can't blame a particular asset class or a particular structure. As money comes into a space, uh, the good deals get done first. Uh, and then potentially, as something begins to heat up, it begins to look uh, a little bit frothy. Uh, and other managers pile in to try and uh, do theirs. Uh, it's a really interesting structure and something that you really do need a deep dive on. And I'd really recommend actually watching that interview. If you want to understand a little bit about the structure, where the opportunities are, where the differences are from other mechanisms, and also, of course, what are the potential risks to investors? You know, by the way, since you guys are both in New York, I wanted to ask you, are you investing in Alex Rodriguez's uh, SPAC? You probably saw that uh, uh, A-Rod, he's got a SPAC. He's going to raise $500 million for his IPO. And he's a, a Yankee guy. So, you know, are you guys, are you are you on that bandwagon, the SPAC bandwagon? I have uh, yet to, I, I do own uh, one or two SPACs. And perhaps some, uh, you know, Real Vision super users uh, will know what that is. Um, but I'm not. I'm not allocated in uh, Alex Rodriguez's SPAC, nor do I own Paul Ryan's SPAC. Um, I think <laughs> there, you know, the fact that celebrities are attaching their names to these structures uh, could be a sign of frothiness. And I say that uh, somewhat understatedly. 
Um, I, I want to know here the argument against uh, sort of is this is this frothy is hey, but Ed, but Ash, you, you say they're a risk, but the worst things that can happen is that investors get their ten dollars back. They, uh, what do you what do you say to that? Well, I say that they're gonna, you know if they invest in a company that's overvalued and uh, and and then the value of that company is is seen to be less, then I've lost my money. Well, let me actually pick up on that, Jack, because this is a really important point. And this is why understanding these structures are so important, that getting back money at par uh, is only for uninvested funds. So like, if the SPAC gets created uh, and then the deal doesn't get done, investors get their money back. But look, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, once SPACs get executed, I'm not sure of the exact legal languages, but once they're formed, uh, you can certainly, to Ed's point, lose money on those companies. So this is definitely not a no-loss proposition. Market forces always apply. Yeah, so uh, uh, I think you, Jack, you were foreshadowing uh, the thing that I like to talk about, credit markets. I think there are two parts to the credit markets today that I want to talk to. Uh, one is the corporate markets that you're interested in, and we can talk about that uh, high yield in particular. But also, I want to talk a little bit about the yield curve. And I know that Ash, she's interested in that. The reason I want to talk about it is because I talked to Katie Stockton yesterday. She's a technical analyst. Uh, basically, you, if you think about just how Real Vision is, you know, we have the fundamental uh, analysis, we have the macro you know, she provides a, uh, an aspect that we don't see from those guys, technical analysis. And of course, there's the political risk uh, as well. You package those all up and you can get a complete picture. What she's saying about the treasury market right now is, is that if you look at certain indicators, technical analysis that she's done, that we've broken out to a new range above 1.00%. And there's resistance in that range from 1.0 all the way up to 1.5 at the 1.1425 level, meaning that from her perspective, if we close on Fridays, consecutive Fridays above that level, that's a suggestion that we are now moving towards the upper end of the range. We're out of the middle of the range and, and towards the upper end. And today we're at 1.20%, just as Ash said at the beginning of the broadcast. If that holds, which I believe it has, by the time this goes out, that means that it will be the second Friday in a row that we have been above that uh, that resistance level. And by the way, this is the highest level that we've had since rates came plummeting down during the lockdown. So really, we're in a brave new world with regard to interest rates. Interest rates are going up, and they're at a level that we have not seen during the whole reflation trade uh, thus far. Interest rates are rising. Um, the reflation narrative that we have, uh, you know, been been uh, anticipating, or market participants have been anticipating over the past few months, has seemed to come uh, in the bond market, in that Treasury yields have risen, um, and in the actual market, in that the banks are trading well, the energy companies are trading well. Uh, that and that kind of makes me think of your interview with Lynn Alden, which aired yesterday on Real Vision, where where she did a deep dive on the types of companies that you want to own according to whether inflation comes, according to whether the Fed enacts yield curve control. Uh, how was your outlook shaped at all, if at all, um, on the banks, on energy companies and those sort of reflation trades uh, by your interview with Lynn Alden? You know, I mean, if I were to look at it from a bullish perspective, it would be that uh, if you are not an inflationist, at a minimum, you could think that there's some real growth, meaning that if you're looking at nominal GDP, you're looking at it as more 
a potential for real GDP growth versus uh, a potential for inflation. Because when I look at the numbers, for instance, I was just reading Albert Edwards today. Uh, he was saying that you know last week that they had written about an upward surge and break evens. But when you actually look at the numbers, core CPI in China is uh, tending towards zero percent. You know there was a plunge from zero point four percent to a decline of zero point three percent year over year in January. And then the same thing's happening in the United States that there's no uptick really in core CPI. So when if that's the case and your and reflation is there then cyclicals like the ones that you talk about, the financials, et cetera, will benefit. That the steepness of the yield curve is going to benefit financials in particular. So mm -hmm. you can think of that as real GDP growth, bullish uh, for those sectors, as opposed to bearish in the case of you know, inflation robbing you of, uh, of return. And to precisely that point, at 30-year Treasury yield now over 2%. Yeah, that's another magic number that people are talking about. I thought it was interesting also that Howard Marks and Joel Greenblatt, where they were pounding the table for the U.S. to actually um, uh, if start uh, issuing 30-year, 50-year, even 100-year paper the way that Argentina has done. And there was one point that one of the two of them made that I thought was kind of interesting. I think it was Greenblatt. He was saying that when the yield curve is steepening the way that it is now, it, it, it almost causes people to want to, uh, to take on debt at the short end, right? Because the difference between the short and the long end is so great, you're kind of like, you know, do I really want to play in the long end of the curve and lock in that rate when I could get this other rate that's, that's lower? And ultimately, when rates shift up and they have to reinvest at a higher rate, that's when bad things happen. So to me, that's the essence of the credit cycle right there. If we see the yields go up and they stay up for a, a, a length of time, people who are reinvesting at those rates, they're suddenly going to say, wait a minute, I should have taken it out for five to 10 years. I shouldn't have taken it out for a year. Now I'm screwed. Uh, I may have to cut back on my CapEx or like, fire people, et cetera. You know, yeah, we could talk about credit markets uh, and the macro economy for a very long time, but so we can get our video editors uh, to be able to have dinner with their families tonight. Uh, I teased at the outset something about crypto markets, and I just wanted to get this in. So uh, last night, the first North American Bitcoin ETF was approved by uh, regulators in Ottawa, Canadian regulators. Uh, this is the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. It trades on TSX. Um, for those of you who may already be familiar with GBTC, uh, which trades OTCX, uh, OTCQX uh, over the counter, there's a difference in structure here, an ETF versus a closed end fund. Uh, ETFs are balanced uh, continuously. Uh, it aims to replicate the price action uh, more closely, especially when it's a single uh, single issue ETF. Uh, and I believe, although I haven't been able to confirm it, but I've heard there's also a dollarization option. Lots of uh, Canadian ETFs have that as an option, and I believe it's present here, but we haven't been able to confirm it independently. There's also news coming out of Australia uh, that regulators down under are open to a Bitcoin ETF. I guess you have to wonder how long till one comes in the United States. Uh, but even if it doesn't, if you have access to a brokerage account where you can get, uh, where you can trade uh, stocks that are listed on the TSX, you know, this is something that is uh, that is coming. This is the uh, this is a greater degree of availability uh, for Bitcoin through your brokerage account. Now, of course, there are people uh, who are very passionate in the Bitcoin space who will say, "Not your keys, not your coins." Uh, but this is a big 
leap forward for people having access to products that can directly track the price uh, of Bitcoin. Of course, there is a premium uh, or a discount to net asset value with many closed-ended funds. This is something that we've seen uh, if you follow GDPC uh, on these exchanges uh, today. But it is really an interesting moment. It's starting to feel like a pivotal moment also on the cryptocurrency side uh, for this and a number of other reasons that we'll probably not have time to talk about here. But we do talk about all the time on Real Vision Crypto. Uh, Ed, I have some thoughts, but do you want to go first? What, what do you think of that? No, you know, I, actually, I was thinking about you that you uh, that you're more in the crypto space. So I think that you could probably you can uh, I'll, I'll pass the ball to you on this one. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Wow. Well, I'm definitely nowhere near uh, as in the weeds as Ash is. He is a true insider because I'm hearing uh, not your coins made me laugh a little bit. Um, I, uh, I would say that it is bullish simply because it allows more money to come into the space. And as uh, investors, institutional investors, give money to these funds, these funds have to buy more Bitcoin. And that drives the price up. And it pretty much uh, is as simple as that. Yeah, that's back to our previous conversation. By the way, one note that I wanted to make when I heard you guys talking uh, about ETFs earlier, there's a Swiss chemist, uh, late Swiss chemist by the name of Albert Hoffman. If that name may sound familiar to you, it's because he was the inventor of a drug called LSD. Uh, and at the end of his life, he lived to be like 101 years old. Uh, and near the end of his life, he wrote an autobiography and he called it My Problem Child uh, about LSD and the things that had taken on uh, in the culture with the drug that he'd created in the lab. I was just thinking that similarly, the father of the ETF, Jack Bogle, a Wall Street legend, toward the end of his life had some misgivings about what had happened with his problem child, the exchange traded fund. So if you want to uh, get some interesting information there, Google Jack Bogle and ETF for a really interesting story. That's so funny you say that, um, Ash. I actually uh, did, didn't think you'd say Jack Bogle. That's, that's a good point. I thought you were going to say the founder of uh, Dogecoin, who founded this thing, he was into cryptocurrency, into freedom, and now he realizes that this thing has been bid up, so it has a, what is it, $8 billion market cap? You know, Albert Hoffman, I believe he discovered uh, LSD because he made it in the lab, and then it didn't. he wanted it to do some purpose, some industrial purpose. It didn't do it. He was disappointed. He put it in his pocket, and he biked home, but it sort of slid yeah. down his leg or, or something like that, and he sort of had the effect of LSD on the bike. So I wonder if the founder of Dogecoin is riding his bike and just sort of what what are these traders doing? Uh, Ash and Ed, what do you make of this of Dogecoin and Elon Musk's uh, pumping of it, if I can use that word? Ash, it's all you, buddy. <laughs> Listen, I'll just say this uh, about Dogecoin. The, the, the single most important fact to know about Dogecoin was it was created as a joke. Uh, and now it has a market capitalization. I'm looking at uh, $9.1 billion. To me, uh, that looks a little frothy. Who knows? Is it possible that with all the money coming into the space that it will attract new developers, they'll do new things with it? It kind of the GameStop story that we were talking about, what could potentially happen that could be good for GameStop? GameStop becomes an online, the Netflix of gaming. So is it possible? I'm not saying that, you know, that, that Dogecoin is necessarily going to massively implode. It's always possible in this space. Uh, you never want to say never. But look, 
when something is founded as a joke, if I created Ashcoin, uh, you know, because of something that we were having a conversation about when we were out drinking beers, uh, and you woke up one morning and it was trading at $9 billion market cap, you'd probably sell some. Well, to uh, finish this conversation off and uh, finish uh, our RVDB off, Ash, I don't think you know this, but Jack and I, we are starting to SPAC. We, uh, he and I, we've decided that we're going to have a SPAC and the investment in this SPAC is going to be, we're only going to buy when the market is down. So we're going to, it's called, you know, buy at, at the bottom, uh, you know, sell at the top. That's, that's our SPAC. So get ready. <laughs> yeah. And I actually think that, uh, unironically, that is a good investment strategy. If we were real investment managers, the problem would be, though, people would give us money We'd hold it as cash and get no return on it. And then, you know, Joe Schmo, hedge fund manager, would be having 30% returns because he's been investing in Tesla. He's been investing in, you know, in hydrogen fuel cells um, and, and stuff like that. And we wouldn't have any returns. So uh, the investors would pull our money. And I think that uh, that is happening. Exactly. Very- and that's, that's the best. That, that's the, the best outcome, right? Because we're not going to uh, invest when it's, we're, we're telling them, look, your money, we're not going to invest it until. Uh, uh, things go down and we can scoop it up, you know, uh, on, on the value. And uh, if they if they can't wait, if, you know, things rage forward, then they get their money back. Good for them. Then they can reallocate it. But if things fall, then they're going to profit because they were with us. And I think if you can put 3x leverage in it, you might have a product. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, as we get to the end here, final thoughts. Uh, I think, you know, we are in uncharted territory in certain ways. Uh, I think when we keep hedging our bets, when we say, you know, hey, look, you know, Dogecoin, anything can happen. I think it's a sign that the market has accelerated in a way that makes us uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable making predictions based upon that because a lot of this is trading on momentum. My hope is is that uh, we can have a, a, a period of consolidation and things can trade more on fundamentals rather than momentum going forward. Mm-hmm. Jack, final thoughts. That's interesting. Well, I'll, uh, it's not so much of a thought, more of an observation. Um, I was reading a newsletter on credit, and um, about $855 billion worth of uh, junk corporate debt uh, is now trading under 4%. That's about 58% of the entire speculative uh, grade market in the US. And I think it is a result of the dynamics that we've been talking about. Um, as yields are so low, investors have to reach out to uh, buy more investment grade. They go up the risk curve. But then that gets, you know, that increases in price. So then they have to buy high yield. Um, Ash, I know Raul has talked about you with this in the crypto world with, regard, with regards to um, altcoins. And I think the dominant view uh, is that rates will rise in the market. So I think that people are going to sort of floating rate products like bank loans and other such things. Um, and I don't know. I, I just I don't know how this can. I, I'm agnostic about whether this time is different, but I, I am I have reason to believe that this can't last forever and there could be some sort of chink in the armor. Now, how I, when that comes, um, I don't know. Uh, Ash and Ed, what do you think about that? What are, what are your final thoughts? I agree. I think that uh, we're living in unprecedented times and there are lots of risks out there. But, uh, you know, as uh, Chuck Prince said, people are are saying, look, you know, uh, when the music's playing, we're going to dance and they're dancing. 
Chuck Prince at Citigroup, you know, one of the great uh, crisis uh, bubble indicator statements. I've said this before, uh, but it's worth saying again for people, especially on the crypto side, obviously uh, things are, are really hot right now. Uh, in Bitcoin and other digital assets. If you're interested in this space, particularly if you're a young person who's just getting interested in investment in the first time, invest, but invest your time. Understand what these products are, understand what they do, learn about the technology, spend less time worrying about every tick on the price and learn a little bit about what's happening underneath the hood in the long term that will absolutely benefit you. Absolutely, and, and Ash, if, if I may, I think a great way to do that is to watch uh, Real Vision content. We've got some of the best uh, investors in the world who we've been speaking to. You know, I mean, Lynn Alden, Howard Marks, uh, Joel Greenblatt. Um, but that, that's just been this week and, and uh, Russell Napier. But next week, we've got Tom Steyer, Julian Brigden is coming on, Lacey Hunt, Felix Zuloff is talking to Raoul, um, so, you know, and, and Mark Yusko. And then the following week, we have a few special guests, which I uh, won't say. But the, the final thing I'll, I'll say is that uh, you know, if you're not a member of Real Vision and you want access to these is, uh, uh, interviews, um, you can click the link below and you can uh, sign up for just a dollar. So I think this is uh, the best opportunity uh, that I think exists out there. Yeah, Jack, to pick up on that point on the crypto side, uh, obviously we have some of the best investors on, but we also have some of the smartest technologists. And I think that's something that's really cool about the platform, something that we did last week. Just to give you an example, uh, an interview with Yehuda Lindell. Uh, who is uh, an Israeli academic cryptographer. And he came on the platform uh, and actually explained in terms that ordinary people could understand elliptical curve cryptography over finite fields. This is the wonkiest of the math, but we think it's really important, again, to pick up on the point that I was making earlier, not just about focusing on the tick by tick, but understanding the math, the computer science, the things that exist underneath the surface that people aren't paying attention to in the space. And this is so important. And this is what generates the opportunity to really become someone who understands this space. Absolutely. And I and apologize. I'm, uh, you know, apologies to everyone, our, our members who are sort of rolling their eyes uh, for us patting our backs or, or beating our chests. But the thing is, you know, Ed, Ash and I, we're Real Vision members too. And, and we're viewers too. We, we want to watch this content. So we can't help but be so excited about it. So if you're not a Real Vision member, um, please uh, uh, sign up now and get these things. And if you are a Real Vision member, uh, enjoy the next two weeks as I know you will. It sounds like a PBS telethon. I feel like I should send them a, a Channel 13 tote bag when we finish here. But by the way, I should just add to pick up on that. Uh, Real Vision Crypto, uh, completely free, not a trial. Just come and sign up. All you need to do is give us your email address. All of the content, uh, absolutely free, not a trial. And uh, you can get access to everything that we've been talking about on the crypto side. Well said. And uh, guys, uh, have a great weekend. It was a pleasure, as always, talking to you. Sorry I didn't get to talk more junk with you. Uh, but uh, next week, we'll, we'll try that. And also, come on the platform. We know that you're covering in-depth uh, the credit markets, and you're doing some of the smartest analysis and best interviews anywhere out there. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Have a good weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.